Now, Tina, I'm sure that doesn't need any introduction really, but um, in case you're not familiar with her work, she is an award-winning short story writer and novelist and also a um, teacher of creative writing. She said she once be considered becoming an archaeologist, but uh, she decided to become an excavator of stories instead. Uh, her short story, Black Milk, won the 2016 Pacific Regional Commonwealth Short Story Prize, and she won the 2014 uh, Nakupu Ora Aotearoa Māori Fiction Book Award for her first novel, Where the Rekohumon Sings, uh, which is partly set in the Marlborough Sounds, as I say, in the, in the 1880s. Her latest novel, which uh, you'll be excited about, it's not on the bookshelves yet, but it is due out in September, and it's called The Imaginary Lives of uh, James Pornicki. And it's all about a young Māori orphan who sails to London to, to learn about civilization and to be um, exhibited as part of an, an exhibition of um, art from, from the time, I guess um, anthropological art, but, but essentially to be exhibited as a savage. And uh, I guess he discovers that the, the wider world is, is maybe not so civilized after all. Uh, you know, we're going to start obviously with um, where the Reko Hubon sings, and obviously th this draws together really three narratives, doesn't it? The, you, you have um, Mire, the, the feisty t teenager kind of growing up in the Marlborough Sounds in the 1880s, who falls in love with a descendant of a Moriori slave, uh, and then there's this uh, contemporary story of their descendants, uh, Lula and Biggs, who are trying to find their cultural identity, I guess. And then we have Emi, who is, uh, is the spirit of a, a Moriori tupuna, who was, was cut down in the, in the Māori invasion of the, of the Chatham Islands. And so obviously the thread running through here is really that kind of Moriori connection. Uh, it, it wasn't a coincidence that, that this was what you decided to write about, was it? Can you mm. explain wh where this came from? Um, this is on, isn't it? I can't hear it, so... Yeah, yeah. I think so. Thank you. Kia ora. Um, yeah, I, we, had a, uh, we had a story growing up. I was always told that we had what my, my dad would say, oh, you've got some Moriori blood. But he would also tell us that there were no Moriori left. So that didn't make any <laughs> sense. But as a child, I just accepted that, that we had some. And it was fascinating because I was like, oh, what's this other thing that's not Maori and not Pākehā and um, this fascinating story and Dad would always tell it to us as a, as a story of pacifism but of course like most New Zealanders he had a lot of the story wrong so you know they, they were here before the Māori and the Māori were the much more warrior race and they came and eradicated them and then the Pākehās came and everything calmed down because they made it all civilised um, <laughs> and so I was like oh uh, you know that was the story and then I you know obviously as, a, a, as an older person I I kind of came across Michael King's book and I came across, okay, this is not the right story, but we had we also still had this question of this Moriori um, ancestor in our family and my mum was particularly proud about this um, story. So I thought, and then I had a daughter, so long, long story, go around the long way. Um, I had a daughter who was born um, overseas and I rang mum and I said, what, what we always give our children... Um, Tupuna names, ancestral names, and I said, "What name shall I give her?" And she goes, and she said, "Media Witsiko, that's the Moriori ancestor." And I was like, "Whoa, okay, beautiful name. I'll give that to my daughter." And um, and then um, 
when we came back to New Zealand, I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, okay, we've got this name, we carry this history, I know nothing about it. If my daughter now carries a name that's connected to this history, how is she to express that or understand that? And so I started this question, and it's one of those books that it starts 10 years ago and was written five years ago, whatever. It takes a long time to figure out how to work through a question like that. Uh, and so I traced it, and very early I thought it might be a non-fiction thing, but then very soon came up against this, this history that was so complicated and so full of gaps and so full of questions for all of the families that I, I came across. And, and in my own history, I never could verify who the ancestor was, like who that person is. I've never... And interestingly, this is a very common story, so I could go... I could trace the whakapapa up about six or seven generations, probably more in a lot of cases, and this one line would just stop just stop there and um, so when I went uh, to Rekohu, when I went to the Chathams, I heard that story again and again that those stories had been hidden or um, uh, not passed on or you know those people weren't talked about because there was there was so much um, I guess um, pain and shame around mm. the things that happened there. Um, yeah so the, the story came out of my own searching but then very much became fiction because I thought, you know, it's not just my story. And I mean, I think you wrote once that, that with regards to um, some whakapapa, it's best to tread lightly over unsettled ground. I mean, the Moriori story is so fraught yeah. and kind of devastating. Why did you feel compelled to, <laughs> to tread on that quite very um, unsettled ground? Because it hadn't enough hasn't been done. I mean, I didn't think I'm I, I'm the right person to do it. I just thought I don't know, we've got a story, I need to understand that, I need to take responsibility for that. And then the more I found out, the more I thought, oh, we've got it so wrong. And so just thinking, you know, we need to understand the complexities of these stories. And kind of the idea was to, to make the fiction um, accessible to a wider audience so that people who um, had carried these mythologies that I grew up, you know, this the story, this false story about Moriori being on New Zealand before Māori that, you know, they're actually tangata whenua of, um, of the Chatham Islands and just I thought that the story could help with that and I didn't want it to be the only story and I don't want to claim any ownership over that story but I just want to encourage those kinds of stories. There's so many stories in our history that don't get told um, and so it was a bit, it felt I worried about it a lot. I worried, you know, I asked permission and I, but that was still never enough. So I've always felt uh, really uncomfortable. Did anyone warn you off? Did anyone say, don't do this? Uh, not really. Um, but I was very, there's a thing, so often people think that maybe as a Māori or someone with a connection to the story, you've got more right of telling that story. But in fact, it's still very complicated and you have to talk to a lot of people. And I knew that if I talked to certain people, I would get warned off and I wouldn't do it. So okay. I was actually a bit of a wimp. Because I, <laughs> I thought the only way I'm ever going to write the story is, like if I, because if I kept asking, you could keep asking forever. Because you really want everybody to, I did want everybody to be okay with it. And I knew I had to do some stuff, write, write about some stuff that's painful. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of... 
I kind of protected that a bit, I think. Um, was your daughter, you know, carrying that tupuna name, was she interested? Did, was she kind of um, interested I mean, in the not, process? You know, kids, especially if mum's doing it, oh, oh, she doesn't <laughs> want to know what I'm doing. So, um, But she's been to the kohu and she, she, she loved it and she, she got to go there at, when I was writing the book and she, it was very special. It's actually very special to both my daughters and... Um, um, and we still don't know what the because connection is. Because it turned is. out that, you, that, that, that it wasn't actually the female ancestor. Was no, it was, right? that you, you I thought it was her father, and now I've found out that it's probably not her father. So again, the trail keeps going. Um, yeah, I keep losing the, the trail. Mm. But um, it doesn't matter. Like That story got me to the place of writing the book. And like I say, it's not just my story, and, I really, and now we're at a place of encouraging other stories to be told about these things so yeah do you want to read a lot oh, yeah sure so yesterday we we're on the boat trip which was amazing privilege and I, t I read two um so there's three narratives as Nikki said and I read two voices which were media from the 1880s and Lula from contemporary times today I thought I'd read um Emmy's voice and Emmy was um as a character who it's called where the record who bone sings and it's his bone that actually someone finds and, and that's how, how he kind of lingers because of the manner of his death. His death was a, I guess, a kind of desecration in the, in the invasion in 1835. And in this part, he is, he, he finds his descendant, Lula, and he just kind of hangs around with her. And so this is about him noticing what's happening for her. Those books, they make my girl sad in a swaying way. I feel it when I go inside. She's all tipped over and does not know how to get back upright. In her mind is a thought that here in all these books is the answer. I've been around all this time, seen all these things that make the world a shiny and hard surface place, but I never learned what they see in their piles of paper. It empty people out. They put all their words in there and then they walk around like Manawa girl, empty inside not know what their story is. Can't tell it from the heart if they got to get it from a book. But then I find out a thing I don't know, even though I've been around longer than every person in the hard surface world. Girl, find a book that shows some of my people on front. Hopple feathers in here, and she sits and reads, and I feel her get filled up with all of it. And it hurts, and it hurts, but it is something like joy at the heart of all her sorrowing. And when I am there, in my manawa, I know what it is a book does to people all scattered and ground into dirt. Mukapu has nothing because no one passed the stories to her. They're not passed to her mother, or her mother's mother, or the boy Iraya and his child. The line is cut, not by death or slave work or dead in spirit. The line smudged and lost because they take the stories. It almost works. Everyone nearly forgets. My people almost become mist burnt away by sun. But the book my mokopu read, it makes people look at their memories to see if they're true. Some people look and see that their memories are thin, are like thin paper, almost see-through. Not, in the end, not real at all. So my girl... What do you see in this book about us, the people are, that are here on the Ekohu before anyone? I feel you suck in your lips and bite down when you get to this bit about the attack and the killing. 
I feel the fold of your brow when you read about the ones left behind in life who barely hold themselves upright because of the burden of so many lost, dishonoured or unpersoned, deader, deader than dead, like me, in between and restless. Inside you expand, stretch out your spirit body in our direction, seek the ones that are yours, and I think as loud as I can, I am here, Takumanua, I am here, yet you cannot hear. So you sit with your book and your pain so full it is joy, and there at the centre is a space where the knowing of your own should be, where the book should be made real. There is still a hole, a no thing, because the book tells the story of a people, not the story of our family, the seeds of you. Do you want to know, Mokopu? If you could hear me, if I could tell, I would sit you on the floor, or better, on the earth, earth outside, the greatest grandmother of all, to hold you steady. The telling would be a hurting thing. I would say to you to take a breath and be ready for the words that come, which might feel like the pain of your bones reset, or your heart made to beat again after a fall. In this way, I prepare you. Then I tell of a time seven and more generations ago when our people walked light on their kohu. It is not that we are weak or we never fight, only that there is one way to live well on, on our island, and it is the way of peace. Death is a matter for the gods to decide. We fight only until the first blood is drawn, until a clear victor is shown. We see no use in going further. The world is generous, generous and the world can be harsh. Our young men prove themselves by climbing cliffs for eggs and hopo. Our young women prove themselves in the trials of childbirth. There are deaths on both sides of these perils. Our island is sometimes an unforgiving mother. We know she will feed only so many of us, so we sacrifice the seed of some young boys to the island to keep too many babies from being born. If we let our sons produce too many children, we might have reason to fight. There is toughness in our blood and sinew and muscle. We see what is needed. We look into our future and we do what is required. The rangata matua say, if you don't follow the old wisdom, the outcome will be suffering. We make it our habit to choose the path of least suffering. We have our ways. Then the white men start to wash up on our shores. I mean, there's so much emotion in this book. What Did you find it emotional to write? Um... I'm trying to think. I can't. I can't think of it. Like I feel it. I I find it emotional. I was just feeling emotional right now. Like it. Yeah. It's um. Yeah. And like I I had the wonderful experience of taking it back to Rekohu last year. Um, and I hadn't been able to for various reasons since it had been published. Mm -hmm. I'd been there twice before it was published, and um, that was extraordinarily emotional. So um. Yeah, it becomes. I guess it becomes something else after you've finished the writing of it. But I, I can't actually. I'm thinking now. I can't even remember what I told you yesterday about that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I guess the main emotion I so associate with it is kind of anxiety and um, desire to um, do something that does no 
more harm, but that does some good. But then you're talking about stuff like that. There's just you kind of have to um, you have to go to those hard, dark places. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm not quite sure how mm. or why I'm doing that. So <laughs> I think I think I think it's important that we talk about these things. So mm. yeah. I mean, the story of Lula and Biggs is um, interesting. That's obviously the kind of contemporary descendants. And um, they grow up without the kind of knowledge of their cultural background because their mother basically, whether it's to protect them from the, the difficult parts of that or whether it's because she can't face it, you know, doesn't tell them about that. Mm. There's um, similarities with that in your um, personal story and that you grew up um, up until kind of a, a teenager not knowing that you had Māori Māori um, heritage. Did you, were you angry about that? Oh, oh yes. I, was, <laughs> I think I was, yeah. So, I mean, I knew I had this heritage, but it was downplayed to the extent I didn't think it was important. Mm. And then I found out, it wasn't that I, I found out about it. I, you know, you can intellectually think something's important and then you can actually experience it and go, oh, there's this whole thing I didn't know about, which is a whole Fano or whole cultural worldview or like being embedded in a culture. And that's when you get angry because you're like, and then, so for me, that that anger I channeled through education and, and only later in life, I guess later in life in my 30s, kind of started channeling it through writing. But um, de definitely kind of deeply, deeply angry about the stuff that has been kind of, you know, we've, through this process of colonisation, we end up with these wonderful stories that we don't know, which is what that passage is mm. about, you know, these, this wonderful, the, these things that we should know about ourselves, these stories that we should, by rights, have these languages that are ours that we don't have access to. And so, yeah, of course, of course it was. So how angry. have you gone about, I guess, trying to mend those connections? And you talk about language, you know, you've yeah. obviously yeah. studied Tereo and so, so how did, how and when did that kind of process happen? Yeah, I mean, well, when I was, I mean, as soon as I hit, as soon as I was like 16 and I went home and I, and I met my whanau, my extended whanau who I didn't know and I thought, oh, I've got to do this, got to find out about this, but I, I haven't been, um, I haven't been, I feel like the real is, is something that always needs more of me and more time than I've been able to give it, um, and and it will give back, but, you know, that's quite a long journey, and some people are, um, that's their central journey, and my central journey has been writing, and writing in English, even though I incorporate real words and rea moriori now as well into that particular story is... Um, I feel like our people are still, um, you know, even though the reo is important, we're still thinking and operating in English, so that's important to keep going to. It's important to tell mm -hmm. our stories in both languages. And so I know that my, I guess, you can't get away from your heritage, whatever it is, and if your heritage is like mine is deeply, I can't remember a time I couldn't read, um, read and and. I can probably remember a time I couldn't write, but I can remember a time. I can't remember not being able to read in English, so it's very deeply ingrained in me. Um, when I f read, uh, when I wrote Once Upon a Time in Aotearoa, people asked me if that was influenced by the oral culture, and I was like, I don't come from an oral culture. Mm. I've never experienced that. My culture is um, that I was brought, that I was educated in as a very written culture. So 
I feel like I guess I've given myself permission to actually work in that written English form and that's where I I try to work with both cultures in written English and try and make connections for both Māori and Pākehā and international, whoever, readers that are between the two cultures and, and the fact that for me and for a lot of people it's too far down the track to pretend that... I mean, how have you managed that with your own um, children, with your daughter? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not well. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my daughter's... Well, we lived overseas for a time, so mm. my youngest was at Kohanga, and then we went overseas, and so we didn't actually... It's, once your language journey is interrupted, it's very hard to get back on track. They're both interested, in, but also they want to speak German and Spanish, and sure. they're international kids, so, mm. um, yeah, it's mm. quite a different thing. I mean, you said in an essay that um, though you didn't know what you didn't know growing up, that you felt haunted by that loss, but that you wrote and that creativity kept you going. I mean, how did you discover writing and, and I guess what sorts of things were you writing about? Um, through really bad poetry that I wrote. <laughs> yeah, like I would just have... Yours or someone else's? No, mine. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's how I was like, oh, I feel, I have a feeling I'm going to write it down. And I don't know if it was that bad, but I couldn't... Um, yeah, once once I started learning to write, I kind of actually got put off poetry because it was always a, an explosion of emotion that I would put on the page. But um, but I re I you forget these things. It wasn't until I'd been I'd published for a while that I remembered I won a short story competition when I was like a nine year old, oh, yeah. and we had to imagine our lives in like the nineteenth century and how you got to school. Mm -hmm. And that I wrote a story about going to school on a horse and stuff and it was for a local newspaper. But I'd completely forgotten. Like i it's just there. Like if you're a writer any anyone that's here as a writer, you know, it's just there. Hey? It's just But I you mean, don't you, you don't make it something separate. You're just like, well that's that's what I do. Were yeah. you a big reader? Yeah, yeah. What's yeah. I mean what stands out oh. from your childhood? I can't, I can't actually remember. The, the, you know, there were things like Trixie Belden and... No, I just read anything. Um, and I remember my, my sister was in hospital once and my dad um, just got a whole bunch of these, like those co those comic things they used to have where they'd have little stories. I can't even remember what they were called, stacks of them. I just remember reading all of them and they had some type of... I guess they were like graphic or like, like, novels, like a little but zine for girls. or something. Yeah, right. but like, you know, and the, I can remember those... Just, distinctly those stories so mm. like yeah just anything and um kind of wish there wasn't so much entertainment for our kids so that they would actually I remember going to the bookshelf and pulling out whatever and just you yep. know going through and just because I was so bored so boredom's really <laughs> were, you, were really there valuable. any you know were there any Māori authors in your childhood did, did, did you no, no no but I think now I dad so some things that dad dad always took us to the library and he didn't tell us what to look for and so we were always getting library books out and um and I think now like I think oh because I I mean we have he we have kind of conflicts about um you know about identity and stuff because he was very much on the Pākehā side mum was on the Māori side and he didn't want us to have anything to do with that at one point and um but he would let us watch like New Zealand I don't know how many kids actually like if a New Zealand film came on he'd be like watch this so I remember watching Utu when I was about eight oh, wow. you know like I remember like and I remember watching the one with the cars what was that? Oh, goodbye, pork pie. no no the one with the Mark II the Māori boys in the cars. 
Oh. Mark II. Oh, Anyone know who Mark II? Um, and so I remember that was always a good thing. Like he was always like, oh, look at this New Zealand film and here's a bit of history and let's go to the museum and stuff like that. Mm. So, and he would always use Māori words with us. So he didn't realise that he was still giving me the culture, even though he was just like, all right, he didn't really seem to value it that much. But yeah, you can't. New Zealanders transmit that culture anyway, I think, mm. even if they don't realise that. Yeah, and just giving that thing of like, the, the stuff that we make, the stories that we tell, mm. are, you know, really good. So, yeah. I mean, you, you said in an, a lecture that you gave at the Auckland Writers' Fest last year that um, I think the stories can save your life. What yeah. did you mean by that? Mm. Um, I... Well, what did I mean by that? Um, <laughs> I think that... Um, yeah, I mean, it, well, it goes back to that reading again, that, you know, um, in the absence of... So what I didn't have was a strong sense of identity, even though he was giving me these things. Mm -hmm. What I didn't have was a strong sense of um, my being able to walk between worlds. At that time as a kid, it was just like you could be one way or the other, and we're brought up this way. Um, and what saved me again and again was like being able to make up stories or read other people's stories or watch films or it was art. It was like creativity, like that thing of being able to, like something is taken from you. You don't have um, a strong sense of identity or whatever problem we all have. We all have, I had, I went to this wonderful masterclass recently and the, and the creative writing teacher in the UK and he said, all a book is is one person who's in pain talking to another person who's in pain. We're all in pain for these different reasons. Mm. And so stories can be that that thing where you go, I, I get it, I'm, I'm feeling the same thing or we're on the same human, mm. you know, you go, oh, what's your book about? It's about the human experience. But yeah, we're all, you know, um, I do find that that's, you know, when you're lost, I would have described myself as lost as a young person. That's the thing that personally saved me. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, thinking about identity, I'm interested in, you know, what's in a name. You know, some of your, uh, Lula particularly, is a, is a pretty unusual name, Lula and Biggs. Yeah. I, I mean, how do you come up with a name and how do you know oh. when it fits? I don't know. Lula, Lula took three different drafts. I threw out two versions of Lula, and she had different names. The reason, they just weren't working. I, I think, um, I just didn't know her as a character yet, and then she ended up with Lula. I was just looking through names, and I was trying to grasp a feeling that put her together with this. Like, a, the, the process of, of creating a character, I, I think... Um, she was particularly difficult to find, and it, for me, I have to kind of believe in them as a as a person. As I like, I have to, have to be real to me. Um, and then Biggs, Biggs is his nickname. I can't remember what his real name is, but he's a big guy. Um, and sometimes we get these wonderful nicknames that are just the obvious, really. So yeah, mm. was, um, yeah. When they became twins, that la the last. The last draft is when they became twins, so they weren't twins for like three oh, years. Oh, okay. And then um, they became twins, and one of them was light skinned and one of them was dark skinned, and that changed everything. Then they were who they were. So it's interesting, like just the simple things, because um, my problem was I might be getting a bit technical here, but my problem was trying to explain this complexity that I'm trying to say to you guys about 
being in between cultures and being one or the other. And if you write that out on a book, it kind of sounds like, oh, I'm telling you what to think or I'm, or I'm explaining these things. And mm. nobody wants stuff explained to them. So I was like, oh, how do I deal with this problem? So I'd put it in dialogue and then it'd just sound really clunky, like, oh, what, what's your problem? And then you have to explain the problem. So I just made... So when they became twins, they were like this dual situation, one light skin, one dark skin. I don't have to... If I, you know, you guys who have read the book or if you know just hearing it now, I don't have to explain to you that, that there's a, a whole bunch of com complicated ethnic and racial tension there just in the fact that you've got two children and one's lighter skin than mm. the other and they're twins. So that solved mm. all of my mm. problems of trying <laughs> to explain what I was talking about. Because I mean, I mean, I'm interested as well that you, you, know, you write under the name Makareti, but that's actually, that's actually your middle name, is that right? Yeah, is that's that, my right? grandmother's so, name. Yeah. yeah, so you have embraced... Uh, a Māori name. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess, why did you do that? And, and has that changed the way people deal with you, interact with you, I mean, treat you as a writer? Yeah, I mean, um, Dahlberg is, is my legal name, mm. um, and it's a family name that I didn't have a lot of stories around. And so I went to my grandmother's name because it was my middle name as well, and I thought... First of all, it keeps me honest. Like, I've, I'm carrying her name. I, I better live up to that. <laughs> I don't know if I do, but it keeps me trying. Um, and the other thing is, you know, the, the other name um, is, is part of my story, but I don't necessarily want to um, represent that, that particular family in my writing. So it was just mm. a it was just like when you go to publish you kind of really have to ask these questions of yourself and but in i mean in terms of the kind of lula big scenario i guess does the thinking about the way that we see culture in terms of the you know the color of people's skin mm. like when you embrace a name that i, I guess has obvious kind of yeah. connotations does it, did that change the way that people I saw have, you i have no idea no. probably yeah. pro probably i don't know mm. <laughs> yeah um, I want to talk about the um, new novel because obviously this is exciting. I think it's probably the, one of the first times that you will have been talked about talking this, about that. I'm, this is the first copy. Yes, <laughs> and, so I'm, and so I'm interested. Yeah. You know, wh what goes through your mind when you get a copy of your book for the first time? Oh, I'm really so. Oh, I'm quite happy with this. I'm usually quite nervous and uncomfortable. I'm worried. It's all anxiety when you're a writer. Um, <laughs> Um, but I'm I'm quite happy with this this one, so that's a nice feeling because I don't know, it's a rare feeling. So does it feel like the end of the process, or does it feel like the beginning? No, of he's bringing he's to quite the world, alive. So James, the imaginary life, lives of James Pornicke and James is here. This is actually a, this is actually from a um, Illustrated London News image of a man called James Pumare, who James Pornicke is based on. It's very fictionalised, very, very fictionalised, and I explain that at the back of the book because I don't want people to get the two mixed up. Um, but I took the image and a lot of moments in his life, which, because they fit a story that I wanted to tell, and then I painted over it and they used it on the cover. And the thing about it is I think is really interesting is because the original is just like this black and white image in the Illustrated London News, so it's quite... Um, 
So then it's kind of like the process of fictionalising a real mm. person. You you colour it in, you paint it, you give it texture, you give it colour. Um, and he's quite alive to me still because, you know, I've just been to London and it was kind of like I'd go places and I'd be like, oh, that's a street or that's his pub. And that was fun. Yeah, and I, so I wondered, did, do you still feel that way? Did you feel that way in the Marlborough Sounds yesterday? Did, you know, did you see your characters around or is it just a function of... It is uh, actually, they, they do kind of ghost, they kind of ghost the situation you're in. Yeah, definitely, mm. if you're in their area. Um, but the, the Rekohu Bone is very much ghosting my own personal story, so I can't really divorce, sure. I can't... I can't necessarily go, this is significant. I mean, I do think of the book, but with him, he's in London, which is couldn't mm. be further from where I am. So seeing him in London, like in my imagination, is actually quite, it's very much the character. It's not my personal story. Yeah. I mean, you include the, um, there's a little newspaper cutting, which was brilliant at the end of the book about James um, Pomare and mm. um, was it, uh, his variety of adventures, and which had included being thrown ashore with nothing but his shirt and trousers on. I mean, yeah. it's, it's quite descriptive. But yeah. I just wondered, where did you come across it? And did you come across that first? And was that the genesis for the idea? Or did you no. kind of have the idea? And no, the idea is, um, the idea came to me when I was in the middle of writing whether Rekul Hubone sings for a PhD. And what I find happens is when you're intensely involved in something, other ideas come along and try to steal you away <laughs> from the thing that you're... <laughs> right. So um, I was in the library trying to write this and um, I saw a book about um, Sarah... She was known as the Hot and Top Venus, and her surname's just gone away from me. Does anyone know Sarah? Um, oh, I'm so sorry. That's just my brain works that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I lose names, but it'll come to me later. Um, and she was um, um, she was a woman from South Africa who had been an indigenous tribe of South Africa who had been taken to London and exhibited them. It's a really awful story, early 19th century. And I read this wonderful biography that had been written about her, and I thought, that is a story more people need to know about. Um, and wouldn't, because my idea at that time was fiction as a way of getting these stories more well known that have been, and so I thought, oh, oh, I couldn't write that story. I'm not from South Africa. She's not, you know, I would never try to take that story and, and like I would need to go and live with her people for a while just to understand like I, it's not something I could do but what if a Ma and I knew Māori people were going across at the time to London for various reasons what if a Māori person saw her what would they think and then it was from there to what happened you know what would a Māori person think of Victorian London mm. especially with the kind of dis ways of describing people the ways of treating people that were normal at the time, like putting a woman from South Africa on display because her body was different from what white people were used to seeing, and also putting her in this kind of get-up that they made for her and exposing her buttocks and stuff like that. It was just horrendous. Um, so I, I, um, I thought what I could do is talk about a Māori person going to that place and seeing mm. these kinds of things happen. Um, that was the idea. And then, I don't know, a year later, a few months later, I went and um, I went to a thing called, uh, a symposium called Manu, Manurere, which was about Māori people who had gone um, to London 
right throughout the 19th, possibly even a little bit in the 18th and 20th century. Um, and many of you will know Rangatira from, by Paula Morris is about a very famous troupe of Māori. But um, Robin Skinner, who's an architecture, architecture lecturer, was talking about the first man who made images of Māori houses, which George French Angus. He does art, and he actually took a young Māori boy with him home to be exhibited with his pictures of Māori houses, with his collection of ethnological materials. And this young boy, and I'll quote this because it's in the front of the book, um, there's one quote that I can say of it. He pre, it's in the other one, he pre, pre dis, prepossessed everyone in his favour. He was such an eloquent, civilised young man mm. And what I, I could never find this in the research, but I remember at the time Robin said he was so he was so civilized. The New Zealand Company were trying to repress any knowledge of this boy because they were selling New Zealand land on the basis that this land was either empty or full of savages. And then this young boy's being exhibited in London, and everybody's like, "Oh, well, he's just really lovely." And I can't even, you mm. know, what's the difference between him and us? Mm. <laughs> so um, the Daily News said. He speaks English so well that at first we took him to be some English boy dressed in savage costume, some intruder from a masquerade. We were, however, mistaken. He reads and writes English as well as any boy his age and is particularly fond of joking. In fact, we have seen many English boys much more stupid, more ignorant than this specimen of the New Zealanders. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, it fell in my lap, and I yep. then I pursued Robin for a while, like, tell me about this boy, and um, I'm going to... But I did have to fictionalise it, because, again, he's a poor mare, and I didn't want... You know, like, he's got a family, um, and I wanted to let the story take on a life mm. of its own. I wanted to really investigate this kind of strange place, early Victorian London, where you would have a Māori boy being exhibited with art, being exhibited with objects, being exhibited with a dwarf in the next room, with other groups of indigenous people, like this is an exhibition hall. It was before there was any, and that they would call this education, but it was entertainment slash education. Mm, it's kind of this fascinating study of identity and civilization yeah. and entertainment yeah. and where they and still, meet. Angus's book was called Savage Life and Scenes mm. in New Zealand and South Australia. That was the name of his book. So he came here with this great project. I didn't write about Angus because, again, that's another person. But yeah. he came here with this great project, met all of our chiefs, made the images of them, and then called his book Savage Seven. Life and mm. Scenes. Mm. So he, he, his, his work was a gift because I was like, okay, let's see, let's see how savage, you know, Indigenous New Zealanders are compared to, so I did a bit of a kind of just getting the, the young boy to look at this place mm. that he was going to and Which say how, mm. how, um, how savage or civilised. It's just playing with that idea. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to have a read? Oh, yeah. So I'm just going to read. You guys have got a flyer maybe. A flyer? With oh, yeah. the... Um, first pages and I'm just going to read chapter the first part of chapter one that just comes after that um, I thought I wouldn't read you that but since you've got it um, chapter one 
I am not yet 17 years of age, but I have a thought that I may be dying. They don't say that, of course, but I can read it in their many kindnesses and the way they look at one another when I speak of the future. Perhaps I do not need their confirmation, for surely I wouldn't see all that I can see in the night if I weren't playing in the shadow of death. So when they come and ask about my life, I tell them all. What else is there for me to do? I don't feel it then, the brokenness of my own body. I feel only the brokenness of the world. From here in the shadows, I can see a piece of London sky and the roofs of countless houses. The curtain is flimsy and over I have asked Miss Herring to leave it aside, for I am so high in this room and the sky is my only companion these many hours. At night, I see, I see the beetle making his slow, determined way be between cracks. I smell the city rising then, black smoke, the underlying reek of piss and sweat, the sweetness of hung meat and fruit piled high in storage for the morning, its slow rot, my own. The street waits and the beetle crawls, leg over leg, down the brick side of the house. From his vantage point I see it all, every detail in the mortared wall, the coal dust that covers it, the wide expanse of London town, lights shimmering along the Thames and out into a wide panorama more delightful than even the sights of the Colosseum. I wish I could tell you the air is fresh here, but no, it is stench and smoke and fog rising, obscuring the pretty lights. Yet I love it, love this dark and horrid town, feel the awe rising even beside the dread. It is a place of dreams. Sometimes I follow the moth who finds her way on swells of air, a ship-catching currents established lifetimes ago, knocked sideways by the draft of a cab passing, the hot air expelled from a gelding's nostrils. The moon is different here, not a clean, clear stream, but a wide and silty river. She lends her light all the same so that I might see the faces that pass. And they pain me, it's true, for every face is one I know, and I cannot say whether they are living or dead. I see all the misses and misters of the streets of London the ones of and the ones of Port Nicholson. The worst of it is when I see the tattooed face or hear the music of the garden orchestra, see gaudily dressed, couples dancing circles, the spectre of shows pitching illusions into the air, tricks of light, mechanical wonders, wax figures bearing features I knew only for the first few years of my life. I couldn't even remember my mother's face until I was confined to my bed, and now I see her every night, a doll animated by a wind-up box. The acrobats then and my friends from the card table warrior men and women of my childish and dark memories from before I learnt about the world of books and ships. My shipmen, both loved and feared, they don't speak, my friends and enemies and loved ones, but I know they are waiting. I know the streets below are teeming with them, even when the hour grows late and all decent men should be in their own beds. It is as if I travel through all the old battles each night until I reach him, and though I know not whether he still walks the solid earth, I always find him. Billy Neptune, even now grinning and ready to make fun. He is the only one who sees me. Hear me, good fellow, he calls. Back to your bed. What is your business out here amongst the filth of the streets? Not the dirt, mind you. I mean people like us. 
At this he laughs, his short, booming laugh, a sound that breaks open in my chest like an egg spilling its warm yellow centre. What is it like? I ask him every night, or how are you? But he doesn't answer. Ah, hear me, he says. What games we made of it, eh? My fine friend, what games? And he goes on his way, and I go on mine, circling the restless world. Brilliant. How easy was it to find out about, I guess, particularly 18, 1840s New Zealand? You know, it's quite early in the piece. Was there much research? Oh, I think, there's, I think there's probably plenty. That was an easier... Because um, I'd already been doing quite a lot of research in that area, era, area the, um, the, the, the essay I read from yesterday, a lot sure. of that... I was re reading about my Pākehā Māori ancestors, and a lot of that happened pre-1840s. So I didn't actually find it that hard to do 1840s New Zealand. 1840s London, on the other hand, was quite frightening because the research could have lasted for the rest of my life. So, um, yeah, so I was... And I was also kind of quite anxious to get it right because it's it's not my place. I've never lived there. I can't, you know, like to capture that, which might have been actually... It might have been a good thing. I might have come in with outside eyes mm. and been able to make it up a bit more. If you're used to that place, you... I don't know. It's just... It's hard either way. Um, I mean, you're bringing an outsider's perspective anyway. Yeah, you? So it's yeah. Kind of um, and hear me. I guess the but the character was, it wasn't easy, but I knew his voice was really important. And I think that thing of being an educated young man in the 1840s was actually something that I already knew about. In that, as soon as um, as soon as kind of writing and reading came to New Zealand, we were like, yes, we'll grab this and we'll we'll, you know, it was a fad amongst Maori tribes to writing and write on mm. leaves and write you know it was a people embraced it wholeheartedly and I feel like we already had traditions that you know visual ways of representing stories so it wasn't alien to us in any way so his character um, the fact that he could operate in two different ways really eloquently I felt like that is not an unusual story, but it sounds like an unusual story to us because we don't hear it a lot. That that was quite a, probably quite a normal thing back then for those who could access it. I mean, you're also a really accomplished short story writer, and some of your short stories are quite kind of mythical in their quality. Mm. But and yet, your novels have, have both been historical fiction. I mean, did have you considered a a purely imaginative um, novel? What do you mean? Well, sorry, <laughs> as in not, ba not something that's not based in historical fiction, something that, oh, yeah, that no, no, maybe no. picks up some oh, more of that well, mythical no, quality. I'm not doing historical fiction. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, well, I don't really think of it as historical fiction. So one thing is, it is it's such a lie I'm telling you guys. Um, <laughs> the, it's set in the 1840s. It's not set outside of that. But that first voice that you've got on that bit of paper, he's talking directly to the reader. And the, the reason I did that was because... Um, I don't believe, I don't like this idea of historical fiction being, oh, that's about the past. That's a nice, tidy little pocket of the past that we read about, and then we get to put it down and go on with our lives and pretend that's not relevant. Um, so this was very much look at 
this time in history is actually not that different from our time in history. Mm. You know, um, we still exploit people. People are still only worth what they can produce or what they can, um, you know, how they can make some money. Um, and I just, um, I read a really interesting kind of academic thing about um, how the the freak culture, because this was a time, you know, where people were displayed as freaks as well, that that has real parallels in um, reality television and um, mm. the internet and stuff. And I thought, no, so this is, um, I didn't write it, I don't want to write it mechanically to, to, to be telling you guys something to dictate anything, but I did think there are definite par parallels. Um, and so I don't really think about it as that. But I do, um, I do, after that research experience, I was like, oh, next time it's, I'm not going to do historical research for once. Like, well, I think yeah. you've actually said that you, you know, you're done with the novel for now anyway, and you're looking forward to writing yeah. short stories and, and essays. Oh, just, just for fun, because short stories are fantastic, and I think I get to spend a bit of time doing short stories. And then I have got a novel in mind, and it's contemporary, but it's 10 years down the track. Kind of. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't okay. know. It's right. a long way away. So, Single yeah. mum. Yeah. <laughs> Stop reading my tweets. It's <laughs> um. <laughs> <That's> my job. <laughs> um, I think we'll open it to the floor. Cool. Um, obviously, great for you guys to have the opportunity to, to um, ask some questions. Yes. During the session, you've talked quite a lot about asking permission Yeah, well, I think what I was trying to say was um, there were people I could have gone to who I didn't. You you have to stop at some point. So at some point, that process of asking for um, a valid, you know, asking for permission, I had to give myself permission. And so when I did the Victorian London, I was like, I had to give, I had to tell myself that's enough now. It's never going to be perfect. You have to be like comfortable with your own imperfection and go, okay, I've got to start writing now. And um, like uh, I'm making stuff up. I have to give myself permission. So one of the people, the main person in the end you have to get permission from is yourself to kind of go, okay. And also take responsibility like, okay, I didn't ask everyone for permission because I would, yeah, you're right, it would never happen. Um, but if someone comes to me and says, there's a problem with what you've written. I, I've always been a little bit prepared for that to happen. Not that I would have any answer for them, but that I'm like, okay, you know, I did it. Like, take responsibility. So maybe part of the permission giving to yourself is to say, it's okay. I might not have done it perfectly, and if I come under criticism for that, that's um, something I'm prepared to acknowledge. Or, yeah, does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> and other questions? Yes. Have you had people um, having issues with I I think quietly I've heard of things, but I haven't had people talk directly to me, but the main people that have had problems with my writing have been family. So um 
because um, <laughs> they really feel it. Eh? They really like it. Somehow it represents because you know whether other people know about it or not, they mm. might feel like it represents them a little bit as well, and they're kind of like. Mm. <laughs> Um, Would yes. you like to join our writing about family session then? <laughs> <laughs> no, they, I don't want to talk about. No. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Any more? Any other questions? Um, On the back there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just. Just kia kahai, like you have, I do feel very strongly, now I'm getting emotional because I feel very, very strongly that we, we need you. So if you're one of those aspiring Māori writers and sometimes I get into the position where people who are students of writing say, you know, what do we do? I, what do we do about this? And I'm, um, you know, how do we do that? And I'm talking about being the ones to have to tell the story and I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry, but you're it. And I'm waiting. And Witty tells, I work with Witty on the Black Marks book, and he's the same. And I think, if I'm saying this, and he's been saying this forever, you know, we just we've got to get on with it. Because, um, and it's a hard journey because you have to put it first and you have to push through. Um, Emily Perkins, who's not a Maori writer but is a wonderful writer, said once, "It's twenty percent talent, or whatever you want to call it, and eighty percent perseverance." And that really is what it is. Like at a certain point, you've so it's hard for us to put that before everything else, but I, when I say stories will save your life, that's some of our young people need the stories so badly. Yeah. I'll stop cry mm. talking through. Yeah. I start crying. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting what you said about having been brought up um, sort of reading and writing in English, and so therefore it seemed natural for you to write in English. Has there ever been any discussion about any of books written by people like yourself being translated into Reo? Well, that's interesting because um, I have translators and want to translate into Spanish and French and stuff. Um, it hasn't happened to me. Um, there's such, like I say, we need anyone that's interested in writing in English or te reo, we just need it so badly. Like the the, the amount of work that could be done there's there's enough work to go around for everyone, not necessarily enough money to go around for everyone, which is a problem. But um, wonderful thing happened with Witty was, so I'm writing this. We did this anthology, right, um, Witty and I, and it's fantastic. If you want to look at the diversity and within Maori and Pacific writing, please mm. pick it up because we're all doing something different, and sometimes we have this idea of a homogenous. Māori voice, um, but he's doing this with me, and I know he's got other projects going on, and then just after this one comes out, this book, um, Sleep Standing, Moi Too, comes out, and that is a book that he did with a young man called Hemi, who knows the book, Hemi, See, aren't I terrible with names, um, but it's one page English and one page Māori, oh, and they wrote okay. it together, cool. and was he said that he actually had the story waiting, and he but he didn't feel it was right yet, and then he got together with him. He works at AT, Hemi, the Tadell writer, and um, so yeah, so you know I, I'm like struggling to get my work done, and what he's coming out with that book and another book and <laughs> and Aria and going overseas. He's just like I was running to keep up with him the whole time, um, and he's in his seventies, so I don't know what that says about me, but. <laughs> 
but yeah, so that is, and people have, you know, so far in reviews and stuff have said, um, you know, this is this is the way when we have, so maybe that's something to do, or maybe anyone else mm. that's writing to think about, can you work page by page? Because it works really well for us as evolving speakers and um, readers of Māori to have that one page of English and one page of Māori. Mm. Mm. Probably have time for one more question. I just want to say you use, you use language beautifully. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's a lovely place to, to leave it. And you do use language beautifully. And if you haven't already read um, Whether Rekohbun Sings, I would really um, recommend it. But also um, Imaginary Lives of, jo of James Pornicke. I'm one of the fortunate few to have had an early copy so I have read it and it, yeah it's a really fascinating story and a fascinating kind of meditation on identity and civilization yeah. and uh, so you can't get it yet yeah but, I'm sorry um, about September. that but you were the first audience to hear a reading from this book there you so. go exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thank you again to the um, organizers and to Astrala but especially to yeah. Tina for coming yeah. over for Wellington and, and, and bringing us this fantastic um, conversation thank you